This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back. This is the Uptime Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we've got six main topics. First off, we're going to chat about Siemens Gamesa potentially uh, making a a pretty big loss here with uh, having to replace faulty gearboxes. We're going to chat about an interesting uh, multi-use project for potentially floating offshore wind turbine platforms. So I think this is sort of a natural progression. So we'll chat about some of the ways aquaculture might come to floating wind. We're going to talk about a little bit of lightning news where AI is getting closer to predicting, predicting where lightning will strike in advance, which is crazy. Uh, We're going to talk about elf so some electric magnetic stuff uh, as far as bearings and gearboxes we're going to chat about robotic uh, blade critters the blade bug pretty interesting technology crawling up wind turbine blades and doing some inspections uh, repairs and then we're going to talk about cleaning which is something that i don't think gets enough press when it comes to not only wood turbines just in general but also the lightning effects as well talking about that so Alan, let's start here with Siemens Gamesa. So it looks like they've lost uh, 70 million euros uh, article from Energy Watch on faulty gearboxes. Ouch. That's a yeah, problem, not great. right? Yeah, gearboxes, you know, you see that, well, Siemens Gamesa is now pushing the, their, how, how many, is it 14 megawatt direct drive? 14 dd is that mm-hmm. right okay so yeah so the gearboxes uh are just a, a failure point which is why the direct drive starts to make a little more sense the the issue with gearboxes is there's vibration components there's that can happen uh obviously lubrication is a big deal uh, any sort of uh, material failure metal failure inside of those things can be a problem so it's just not not a huge news point, but I think it sounds like they had some cracks in the case, which are, I guess, probably fatigue related um, or material related. And they got a material issue with the casting that they didn't expect. And, you know, what are you going to do besides replace them? There's really nothing to do about it because once you start, there's, a, there's one thing you can get inside and start taking out different parts of the gearbox and replacing them. But if you start cracking the case, it's like the uh, cracking the block on a internal combustion engine. It's pretty much over. There's not a lot, not to go yeah. you're gonna do about that. You can't weld it back up. That's just not a thing. So uh, this is a big problem. And I think they found it from what I could read. They found it actually on their test bed first, which is where you want to find those things uh, before yeah. you start seeing their problems. megawatt yeah. prototype. Yeah. Which is where you want to find them, right? You want to try to 
this this is a very common engineering thing to do is you can't run the your piece of equipment out for 20 years and then sell it because then no one will want it because it's 20-year-old technology. So what you do is you get out a year or two in front with the technology and you have it running and operating. And then you can detect those likely failure modes and then pass it along to your customers say, hey, these these little repairs or mods need to be made to keep it up and running. And then that's, that's part of mm-hmm. the expected part of the deal. Uh, but when you have sort of a, a significant catastrophic, mean, it's not catastrophic, but it could turn into catastrophic if you left unattended, you want to fix that up front. And in this particular case, it's a main component of the uh, the turbine. So, ouch, um, it's a problem. It's a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, for a huge company like, you know, Siemens Gamesa, 70 million seems like a lot, but probably just a little drop in the bucket for them. Uh, and yeah. obviously a lot better than maybe it getting out of hand and being a, a much bigger problem than that. So, oh, sure. Because they said they they don't expect for it to be much more than the 70 million uh, that's already already been spent on on repairs and replacement. Yeah, so. right. Because you can envision the kind of failure modes it could get into from just leaking oil to uh, gear failure to overheating conditions, which are all bad. So it's it's really... It's really great, you know, that the the wind turbine companies, when they develop these products, are looking a couple years out in the future, which is what they should be doing. So hats off, even though the the outcome is not great, at least hats off, you know, you're making the industry safer by doing that. Well, yeah, and these events in business are newsworthy because, you know, big loss, people want to know, you know, on the investment side Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But, you know, like every business and even person, like... You know, a, a person gets X amount of parking tickets a year, right? Or speeding tickets or, you know, your car gets, you know, vandalized or, you know, a tree falls on it. Like there's just so much amount of loss that you have in your regular life. Remember Apple a couple of years ago tried to invest in that huge sapphire manufacturing plant. Oh, Lost yeah. like a billion dollars. It just didn't work. Yeah. You know, and Apple just kept chugging right along. So, you know, I'm sure they, <laughs> all these companies have these sort of like built in, like you just know you're going to stub your toe as a person, as a business, like X amount of times throughout the year. And you just, you know, chalk it up to trying and just keep moving forward, I guess. Right. Yes. <laughs> but speaking of innovation, uh, this is a cool thing. I think this is a really interesting idea. Offshore wind with an aquaculture facility built in. So they could potentially grow, um, you know, shellfish or do all sorts of products depending on the climate, you know, where they are in the world. But with these offshore floating platforms, I think that seems like a pretty natural progression. So in this article by Renews.biz, just talking about the uh, OPEX, the offshore platform for energy competitiveness, they're setting up a 15-month feasibility project to see, you know, can we sort of combine and make this like an aquaculture lab in addition to obviously being a functioning floating wind turbine? How do you feel about this? Mr. Engineer? Uh, the dual use makes a lot of sense because it, it's an existing piece of hardware that's out there and you can yeah, adapt it. Do more of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it does. The only thing that worries the engineer part of it is will the extra events that are happening on your platform somehow degrade the uh, performance of the platform somehow? Like, it, it, Would it cause additional corrosion? Would the shellfish attaching themselves to these pylons essentially cause issues going forward uh, from so from the engineering standpoint you're like oh, i don't like, like anybody messing with my design I, I know what it is i know if it's left alone yeah. it'll be fine right and when you start putting extra things on it especially have to do with the wildlife <laughs> it just adds that level of oh, i'm not sure this is a great idea but 
it does it does lend itself into looking at it and and it needs to be developed before it gets instituted in a larger scale but there are opportunities yeah. there right i think there are real opportunities there because you have this really fixed platform and and if you can grow shellfish shellfish off of it and it just makes life easier to do that and then great and i think there's some other opportunities there too because you got this flick fixed platform you could instrument it to monitor ocean temperatures waves you can monitor um uh, the area with cameras for whatever reason for ships coming in and out or if you're on the in places where there's a lot of uh, nefarious traffic coming in and out you could actually load these up with sensors and that kind of thing so there, there's a lot of opportunities to make it a dual use it's just uh engineering wise you just never never want your little baby to be altered right so I think there's probably a little bit of hesitation there. Yeah, well, and it also would make this thing from essentially an uninhabited thing in the ocean to an inhabited, like if there's going to be yeah. aquaculture, there's going to be people there. And if this right. is going to be X amount of miles offshore or just even a couple thousand yards offshore, which I'm sure it's going to be farther than that. Now, like people have to live there some amount of the time. You have to have some sort of accommodations, probably. Like if you know, there's a research lab, people yeah. can't just be going back and forth five hours by boat. It's not going to be make any sense from a time efficiency standpoint so then it's like okay well now there's people living here for two weeks at a time or a month at a time how does that change the noise the turbine can make and all these other different things like now there's just like it becomes probably becomes really complex really fast is my guess oh, too sure it does and there's always kinds of insurance issues about being on the platforms and mm -hmm. right you can take your take your boat and equipment up to the platform but once you cross onto the platform you're at a different level of restrictions and training yeah. that are involved right so it does have a yeah. level of difficulty and as soon as you put humans on anything uh from the design standpoint there's added risks like people do inadvertent things that can cause problems so usually usually alan, in any <laughs> alan i gotta stop you this is this is the way we combine the podcasts into a, so here's hear me out here you got the floating offshore wind farm that makes the world's finest oysters whatever <laughs> oysters, yeah. then we get the evtol market which we talk about in the struck podcast and you have these evtols come in to grab the day's you know harvest take them back to shore so now you're combining wind power with <laughs> EVTOL, you know, electric takeoff, vertical, vertical takeoff and landing. It's uh, everything's coming, well, you, com coming together. See, I think this answers the, the other problem, which is in order to get to some of these offshore sites, you need to be on a boat for a while. And yeah, right now, the, the only answer right now is helicopters. That's the only faster way to get back and forth, but they cost so much to mm -hmm. operate. I, you're going to see electric uh, aircraft going back and forth to these to these platforms that is inevitable yeah, sure. that's coming and yeah it does change the dynamic quite a bit because then you don't have to be on site all the time because the cost of getting to and from just went way down way way down mm -hmm. and yeah you could have fresh seafood <laughs> you could have fresh shellfish coming to your your dinner plate from turbines it's possible it's very very possible there you go so last thing on a new segment here uh AI can potentially predict where lightning will strike 30 minutes in advance. So, Alan, you're the lightning guy. Take us take us through this. Is this real or is this oh, sure. pie in the sky? No, it's not pie in the sky. But uh, when I read the article, I had to take a double take because what pieces of information are you using to determine where lightning will strike? And 
is it just looking up at the sky and saying, yeah, there's a thunderstorm cloud? Because <laughs> that's usually your your first indicator. Like, wow, that's a really tall cloud and it looks awful dark. And those kind of clouds generate lightning. And they generate lightning tends to be on the on the front end. And I guess it depends, honestly. But there, you can if you know there's a cloud there, you generally know where the lightning is going to come out of that cloud. And there's also like a, a rate that you know because it takes a certain amount of time after a discharge or a lightning flash that that uh, it takes for the cloud to kind of charge back up again and then do it again. So there's, there's sort of a repetitive nature to these things. So you could you do that? Oh, and create a artificial intelligence algorithm to help predict that yes you could but do you really need one i'm not i wasn't sure what the need of was here like we know that lightning is going to strike but i can use my eyeballs to do that too mm -hmm. what added feature is there to it because how are you going to use the data uh, unless unless you're using the data to protect like stadiums of people or uh, soccer fields or football, as it's called in most part of the world. Uh, you don't want people out on the on the on the on the field getting hurt by lightning strikes. Is that where that was going? I assume that was part of it. Well, I mean, is there any any way to protect things from lightning? So if we know it's going to strike in this given area, like do we like shoot like a something over to like you know like in in movies you like dive in front of the bullet to protect someone else? Like is, is there any? <laughs> what's the application? Can we fire something off to take the lightning strike? Like, I mean, yeah. well, practical example, you were talking about the spaceship, the space shuttle, right? Like mm -hmm. they figured out in the 60s that the space shuttle would actually cause lightning strikes. So to prevent that, they would fire off, was it a little ballistic, was it missiles or was it lasers? It was lasers, right? Well, they, to, have, they, have these, they have these rocket launch systems, which are they still do down in Florida at the University of Florida that have very thin copper wires behind them. So they're essentially model rockets that have very fine copper wires and they fire them off and they'll actually trigger lightning events. So it's a way to discharge the cloud, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, you could do some, something like that. I think the other, you know, the one that, that keeps getting popped up year after year after year, which hasn't really been implemented widely yet is lasers to discharge a cloud to basically create a lightning event and discharge it before it got to something you cared about like a wind turbine uh, but we really haven't seen much of that and there's really there is some randomness to lightning that's part of its uh allure is, is that it just happens randomly that's what we call it force majeure a lot of times because it is mm -hmm. sort of this random event and i don't know if you're ever going to take the randomness out of it you may be able to detect where it's likely to occur, but the randomness part is still still there. All right, so in our second segment here, we're gonna start off with ELF. So Alan, you're an electrical engineer. Uh, you know, we're talking about electrical line frequency and some of the issues that this can have. So interesting article out of windpowerengineering.com by David Clark of CMS Wind. Mm. He says about 50% of drivetrain failures are in the generator, yeah. and some of this can be stray electrical current. So what is electrical line frequency, what can that do to a, a wind turbine? Why is that a problem? In the generator itself, there can be stray currents running around inside, and it depends upon the way that the generator has been designed. Uh, but essentially it goes like this. So you've got this, this rotating machine that is rotating through magnetic fields and that creates electricity. That's how you create electricity. So you got a rotating magnetic fields and 
copper wires and loops and that coupling creates electricity. But you also have a lot of stray currents or you can have a lot of stray currents. And those stray currents can create problems if those stray currents go through mechanical pieces, particularly rotating mechanical pieces like bearings. So anything where you have a very finely machined part that is rotating, if you get sparking inside of that because you have stray electrical currents, essentially, that those little little sparks, even though they seem harmless, each one as an individual spark is is relatively harmless. But as they add up over time and you start to pit the bearings or pit the raceway or pit the bushing, those little little pinpricks start to add up into something. And over time, you start to start grinding away at bearing interfaces and bushing interfaces and the wear and tear explodes so that you essentially shorten the lifetime of that generator and the bearing. And so you want to be able to have some sense of what's going on in there and whether uh, that event is happening. This is why the early generator testing is really important because if you're looking at lifetimes, sometimes it's some of these events internally to the generators, you can't really see all that well, detect all that well, but you see them another way. It's in the way that described in the article is, hey, this, you start to see vibration because that bearing isn't as smooth as it once was when it was factory new. All of a sudden you've got this uh, grinding surface coming together and it eventually destroy itself given enough time and you, you don't want that. So you want to try to control those stray electrical currents as much as you can or, or quote unquote ground them out so you don't have them running through, through the bearings and the raceways and all that kind of stuff. And so from a risk mitigation standpoint, uh, early development testing and all the monitoring that happens at the OEMs plays a big part into eliminating that. But it sounds like there's either things that have changed or design has changed and then that's getting in service. And if you're seeing that in service, it's a big, big issue. If you're seeing it, especially if you're seeing it in vibration data for your generator, that's a problem. That's a really big problem. So moving on, the uh, this is a really interesting thing, uh, the blade bug. So they've done some testing, and this is a, a robot that will walk on a wind turbine blade even in its vertical position. Uh, it's, and they have, it looks like a couple of different configurations, but the one they've uh, sort of tested recently, it looks like it has, uh, I think, six or eight feet, mm. depending. Um, but it's uh, just picking them up and putting them down just with little suction cups, and it uses vacuum to walk on this blade. And obviously the potential here, this has not been tested on a live wind turbine yet, not like moving, but in the field, you know, out, out at sea potentially. Yeah. Um, but obviously like, you know, the future, you know, Danielle's from sky specs talked about obviously the imperative, um, use of drones and how important they are, but also he was talking about potentially robots, you know, clinging to blades and, and walking up and down and yeah. doing repairs. So he was kind of mentioning this sort of concept before, and uh, to me, these seem it seems really slow. Obviously, this is a prototype. This is like right. the first phase of this getting somewhere, right? Like right. we need this um, to start somewhere, which is which is great. Um, but it seems like just looking at the design, which is fascinating, but it seems like it's a long way from this thing having different tools and actually grinding into a blade and making a repair, doing this, doing that. It seems like that's pretty sophisticated on top of just the fact that you know, this is a really sophisticated device just to, to walk on the darn thing, yeah, right? Am I wrong here? You know, you're right. It, it's even to walk on it. If you think about it. It's impressive. It's really impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and blades aren't the cleanest thing in the world. So if you're trying to mm -hmm. essentially grab hold or suction cup your way up 
a blade, the, the surface contours and all that make it a little more difficult. So just to stick to the side of the blade is impressive. And then to move along and not fall off, which is also not easy because especially if the wind's blowing, I mean, there's a lot of forces going on there that would want to eject your little robot. Are these, the is it windy? Is it windy where they put these, you know, uh, these machines? Occasionally oh, it is. Yeah. So ten, tends to be, yeah. Tends to be a little windy. Got it. And also in places where it's wet, right. And in places where it's cold, <laughs> And places were mm-hmm. extremely hot. So you're putting this robot in the really rough environment and saying, I'm going to take into fact all these variables and I'm going to not fall off, <laughs> which is which is remarkable. And even to attempt it is, I think, difficult to conceive because yeah, it's, for sure. it's just way too many variables of, of are you always attached? And you ever seen the... the you probably don't watch these movies, but you ever seen the Mission Impossible movie where Tom Cruise is suction cupped his way up the side of the skyscraper uh, with the little gloves? They're actually gloves, the gloves that stick to the side of the building, and not even suction cups. It's just these suction cuppy gloves. That- I think I've watched at least one of the Mission Impossibles. Not like a like they weren't like on my list, but I, I know James Bond has done that different points, right? Like every yeah, spy has done that. Has at some done point. that. Little- I mean, it's like old news for spies. Come on. So what always happens yeah, yeah. in all those movies, right? The suction cup gives way, and they then they. Your hero follows chaos, <laughs> right? yeah. which is mm-hmm. the first thing you think about any sort of suction cup device is like, is like, oh, it's only going to work most of the way, and then something tragic's going to happen, and then the story mm-hmm. story unfolds from there. So, yeah, it's an uphill battle. So even if they get the technology right, I think um, just the perception of the technology is is going to make it a little bit difficult to gain traction, but. If it works, it works. And, and that's what it comes down to. If it works and can show that it saves somebody from being on that blade for a long period of time, it will be adopted. It will be adopted. Yeah. Well, and I was wondering out loud, well, not out loud, but internally, how does this thing get up there? Well, it looks like they, you know, go up tower traditionally on top of the nacelle and then, all right, go a little doggy and there you know, starts marching down the blade. Um, but obviously, like, you know, way down the road, Maybe there's a drone that lifts it up into place and just shoves it right where it needs to go. That's sure. probably obviously the ideal, right? To have right. humans on the ground. Right. Although I guess going up the, you know, traditionally through the center of the tower. Not a big deal. Is not a big deal either. No. no. So, um, but obviously, you know, if these are offshore platforms, the best scenario would be one dude just goes out there with all the equipment and just like push a button, which is, you know, what Skyspecs drones and other drone companies do and yeah. just push a button and it does Boom. its thing you know one drone goes inspects the blade and then it comes back down and picks up the the, the bug and takes it up to the spot and then it does its like their own their own little team essentially right yeah the guy tells the drone what to do the drone makes a plan and then the drone takes the the construction crew up there which is just the robots see this so, this is so popular mechanics and i don't know if you ever back in the Back in the day, when <laughs> the seventies and eighties, and popular mechanics would have a lot of articles about robots and technology, and you're like, oh, that'll never happen. Mm-hmm. It kind of put it in the in the realm of flying cars. But now we're getting close to flying cars, so now it's time for the robots to come in too. So all this is going to yeah. happen in the next. I think, it really, realistically, um, in serious applications, it's in the next ten years. It's going to be we're going to be talking ten years from now, going, yeah, that happens all the time. It just does, yeah. And at some point, the drone probably just flies up and then, you know, it sprouts its feet just like an airplane, you know, yeah. puts its landing gear down and it just hovers closer and Boom. sticks to it. 
Yeah. And that's that. So it's all just one integrated thing. Yeah. And then just when it's done, it just takes back off, flies off the off the blade and comes on down. Yeah. So it's going to be cool. that easy. And yeah, it's well, eventually, yeah. but okay. that's a lot of complexity to to get to that point. Plus battery life. That's the other thing. It's a lot of energy to get up there, hover, do all this stuff and then come back down. Yeah, too. but we so. have stuff driving electric vehicles and if it's we true. can do that, then we can put robots on turbine blades, no sweat. That's just a matter of time, matter of time. So last topic today, uh, drone, well, not just drone, but wind turbine cleaning. So I don't think a lot of people think about this. Obviously, they're these big shiny white things, but Alan, they don't really stay shiny white that long, do they? <laughs> no, very little. So somebody's cleaning these gigantic machines. Uh, you see the the videos and uh, LinkedIn uh, bits from Aronis, which has a, uh, it's a very fascinating company. I don't want to get into it too deep, but essentially they have uh, a sort of a rope-based system. They got uh, four ropes that can lift a, it's not a robot, but a, a mechanism, I'd call it, um, up mm-hmm. and down the wind turbine blades. But they also have an ability to to clean them because they can manipulate up and down along the blades, uh, a, a, a cleaning robot, so to speak. Um, which, and the videos are fascinating because you don't realize how dirty the blades get unless you've been around them enough to know like, like they're dirty and they're anything of any kind yeah. of dust, particle, smoke, uh, debris that's in the air is getting on those blades and one is creating uh, a little bit of turbulence and drag so it's, it's not as smooth as it once was and and two from the sort of the lightning perspective all that debris and dust and particles and whatever else is attached to it makes the blade shell slightly conductive and and all those little and especially if it's if it's salt uh, from the ocean, and there's there's salt in pretty much any bit of air, you're going to get that on the blade, and all of a sudden your lightning protection system doesn't work like it you think that it should. And uh, we, we get pictures all the time of uh, wind turbines where that have been lightning strikes that have happened further from the tip, meters from the tip five meters, seven meters, 12 meters from the tip. You're like, what is going on there? Well, all the all the debris on the outside of the blade is slightly conductive. And what happens is the lightning protection system, which is usually a bunch of receptors on the surface, uh, it, when those receptors become energized, they just start electrically, start reaching out everywhere that's conductive. And so it actually, instead mm-hmm. of reaching out to the sky, it'll also reach down the blade because that's a very conductive thing. And it's just sort of the last, it's a, it's a path of least resistance. So you, you can either jump out to the sky, which is pretty resistive, or I can just kind of shoot down the blade just to energize the blade up, which is what happens. And then bad stuff happens subsequently. But uh, cleaning the blade minimizes that a good bit. And, but you rarely see, unless there's been like a smoke or some real contaminant on the blade, you really rarely see them cleaned. Uh, but I, I think as we get discussing the 20-year lifespan, does it make sense to clean them every couple of years? If the answer is probably yes. Depending where you are in the world, the answer is probably yes. Because it keeps the aerodynamics up. It, it should help minimize some of the lightning issues that occur as the blades get dirty. Mm-hmm. right and and just make the performance better and if it doesn't take that long to do it 
then why wouldn't you do it? If, it's, if you're already inspecting the blades uh, with the system, which probably you are, then while you're there, why are you not cleaning the blades? Because it doesn't really cost you anything at that point. They're already there. Yeah, and, and doing some research, there's a lot of companies that, that do this, that do wind turbine cleaning. Some yep. of them go up ropes. It just depends, but it seems like using drones is becoming more and more of a prevalent thing. This video I found by Matt on by Mashable on YouTube just shows a drone that has an electrical cord, actually, um, and so that allows it to stay in the air indefinitely mm-hmm. and, and support, you know, with higher voltage, I guess, support, you know, pumping water up there to it. So it's just up there hanging out as long as it needs to, to just keep pumping up water and just blasting the blade, which seems like definitely the most efficient way to do it rather than send people up there because oh, sure. for all, for all, for all the hazards being up there, if you're up there with a power washer, that seems <laughs> awful because I mean, anyone's ever power washed anything. You're just getting a ton of spray back in your face. You're getting really wet and, uh, <laughs> and being wet with safety equipment and all that, that high off the ground. And it's, it's windy you know, and cold probably. Yeah, yeah. that seems so let's, let's keep going with the drone, the drone cleaning. That seems like the definite way to go. Yeah. But yeah, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought much about it, but you know, you see a lot of them and they're pretty pearly white and they definitely can't stay like that forever. You're right. right. Especially in the, the harsher environments. And uh, especially like underneath, like underneath the nacelle, that's where there's, you know, oh. like the blades are going to get, they're going to connect with rain and they're going to sort of self-clean to a little a, bit, yeah. to an extent, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But underneath the nacelle is where it seems like they get pretty grimy because oil, nothing's going to spray that off. Right. Yeah. Oil and mm-hmm. grease, if they've had, especially if a gearbox let loose or they've had some sort of spill, which happens, right? And that just goes right down the tower and then anything, it's sticky. You know how oil it gets when oil dries out, it's sticky. So then you get all this other crud sticking onto the sticky oil you just want to get it off mm-hmm. of there because it, it can also trap water it too. Bakes, it kind of bakes on there after yeah. a while too you're like not going to be able to get it off very easily salts yeah. and debris and stuff get stuck in it and then it's sitting against the the tower you, you don't want to start a corrosion issue you want to get that stuff off so it makes a lot of sense yeah it's just one of those things like i said it probably one of the things that flies under the radar yeah. a little more about these massive machines that does get taken care of sooner or later just probably not you know maybe really often intervals maybe it's every year two years if you're out there and you're listening shoot us a message how often does your wind farm get cleaned let us know all right well we're going to wrap up today's episode of uptime if you're new to the show welcome if you're a regular here thank you for your continued support please subscribe to the show and leave a review on itunes spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts don't forget to check out the weatherguard lightning tech youtube channel for video episodes full interviews and short clips from each show For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.